amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime. The Profile of a Murderer. This is a story about the brutal murder of an innocent girl in Odense in 1992. Danish police used the help of psychologists for the first time to find the perpetrator, making it the first instance when a psychological profile of a culprit was drawn up and used by the police. The story includes descriptions of graphic violence and sexual assault that some listeners may find distressing. Bettina Rasmussen is 19 years old. She lives in a small town called Herdeslu in southern Denmark. After finishing secondary school with very good results, she traveled across Europe and Africa. Bettina is studying medicine at Odense University on Funen Island for six months, and the second semester has just started. Bettina likes sports, has been playing handball for years, and regularly runs in the area near her student hostel on Vindegar Street. She treats her education very seriously, studies a lot, and sometimes takes night shifts working as a nurse. This means she's rarely seen with other students partying in town. She prefers quiet evenings spent with a small group of friends. During one of those quiet evenings spent at the student hostel, she meets a young man. They arrange a date, which is set to take place at his residence. It's a rainy and windy evening on Saturday the 22nd of February 1992. Bettina leaves her room at Vindegar in the center of Odense. It's just past 7 p.m., and she plans to travel to the man's residence by bike. It's going to be her first real date, so Bettina is excited and looking forward to it. Walking to get her bike, which she keeps in a storeroom in the hostel yard, she doesn't notice a man standing on the street, watching her. When she enters the storeroom, he follows her. The student hostel where Bettina lives and the storeroom where she keeps her bike are little more than 50 meters apart. Bettina hears the man's footsteps as he enters the storeroom and looks in his direction. Good evening, she says, mistaking him for one of the neighbors. She doesn't see the knife in his hand. Four hours later, at 11.03, Bettina's best friend who lives in the same student hostel returns home. When she rides her bike into the poorly lit yard, she notices the storeroom door is open. She's irritated that one of the residents apparently forgot to lock the door again. When she walks in, she notices a figure lying on the ground among the bikes. At first, she thinks it's a dummy someone left there as a joke. But when she comes closer, she realizes it's a half-naked woman with bloody wounds on her throat. Shocked, she runs to the hostel and notifies one of the residents she comes across. She didn't even recognize that the woman lying on the ground in the storeroom was her best friend, Bettina. Together with the resident, they go out and stop a taxi that's driving nearby. 
and the driver uses his radio to call the emergency number. The police station is just a kilometre away from the student hostel. Two law enforcement patrols and a criminal police officer arrive at the scene first. Bettina is lying on her back in a pool of blood. Her face is turned to the wall on the right side of the door, and the bikes have been knocked over and are lying all around her. She's still wearing her jacket, but someone cut the buttons off. Her shawl is wrapped around her neck above the collar of her jacket. Both her cotton t-shirt and bra were cut in the middle, revealing her stomach. Her jeans were cut too, the left leg slashed, and the right leg slit to the knee. The perpetrator must have used a sharp knife, as the blade left no marks on the victim's body. There are cuts across Bettina's throat and bloody fingerprints on her thighs. The police place each piece of her clothing in separate bags. They know the blood might belong to the victim or to the attacker, so it's important to secure each of the blood traces separately for forensic analysis. This will be an important factor at a later stage of the investigation. The autopsy reveals that Bettina Rasmussen died of blood loss caused by one of the cuts to her throat. The perpetrator probably tried to strangle her with the shawl first. No traces of semen were found during the post-mortem examination, but the girl was not wearing any underwear, so the police assume it was missing from the crime scene and that the perpetrator was driven by sexual motives. The next day, 20 criminal police and law enforcement officers are assigned to the investigation. The murder was brutal, and the police haven't come across a case like this in many years. Newspaper headlines, radio, and television all share detailed information about the crime. Unfortunately, the police don't have much to work with, since it's the winter break. Many of the students are out of the hostel visiting their families, and none of the residents that were there noticed a thing. One thing that the police managed to determine relatively quickly is the time of the murder, because Bettina had mentioned the time of her date to a friend that fateful Saturday. The young man she was going to meet lives near the hostel, so the police pay him a visit. But he has a solid alibi, which quickly rules him out as a suspect. At the same time, the police are looking for the murder weapon. They check the entire area with the help of sniffer dogs. They search all nearby sewers and waste containers, but to no avail. Police search through their archives, looking for information about former sex offenders, and the fingerprint experts examine Bettina's clothes and the crime scene. They find nothing. News about Bettina's murder spreads anxiety and fear in that district of Odense, especially because there's been a peeping Tom roaming the neighborhood for some time, watching people through the windows of their houses. Vindergar Street is the part of town where there are many nightclubs, bars, and massage salons. It's a place where you can meet all kinds of people. The fear in the local community is palpable as local shopkeepers see their turnover decline with sales down by 50% immediately after the murder. Jens Erik Lehmann, a policeman from Odense, is leading the investigation as chief of the police's criminal division. From the beginning, he openly talks to the press and regularly informs them about the progress of the investigation. He does so with the hope that some residents may have information that could help the investigation. The police organize a series of press conferences, and the first takes place on the Monday, soon after the murder. Among other things, 
They share the information that the murderer took Bettina's key to the bike storeroom and probably also stole her bike lamps and her purse. The investigators are not absolutely certain Bettina had the purse on her that evening, but it wasn't found in her room. One detail is kept secret from the journalists, that the police believe the murderer took the victim's underwear. In criminal cases in Denmark, it is a standard procedure to keep some aspects of the crime secret, away from the public eye, so that some details are only known to the police and the perpetrator. This can be crucial when suspects are questioned. Except for that detail about Bettina's underwear, Jens Erik Lehmann makes all other facts related to the case public, and the police soon get their first clues from the residents. The chief of the criminal division asks for information from anyone who knows people who could use knives professionally, such as butchers or surgeons, since the murderer was clearly experienced in using the murder weapon. On Monday morning, the 24th of February, the police receive several interesting hints. One of the victim's friends comes forward and says that Bettina was hiding the fact that she was married. During her stay in Ghana in 1991, she supposedly married a 32-year-old Ghanaian citizen. She lived with the 32-year-old man in Ghana for some time, but then returned home. Soon after that, her husband flew to Denmark. Bettina had made an agreement with the man that she would wait for him at the airport, but she didn't go. He tried to call her, but Bettina didn't answer. She avoided contacting him. The police find out that Bettina married the man only to help him to get to Denmark. The agreement is mentioned in a contract-like document that was drawn up with the marriage certificate. The document confirms it was just a pro forma marriage, and the agreement didn't mention that the married couple would be living together. Additionally, according to said agreement, they had to divorce two years later. The husband contacts the police. He is questioned and cleared of the charge of killing his wife. It seems he has a solid alibi. The police also get another important clue. A witness comes forward claiming that on the night of the murder, shortly before 7pm, he saw a man running through the student hostel gate and then across the car park in front of the supermarket located on the other side of the street. The witness is almost certain that the man was approximately 20 years old, 185 centimeters tall, and had curly hair. He also recalls that the man was probably wearing black trousers and a jacket with leather trimmings on the sleeves and collar. Eight days after the murder, this man's description is released in a Danish TV program, Unsolved. The program is popular, and after it's aired, the police receive over 300 messages. One of them will finally lead to a breakthrough in the investigation. A young man who watched the program calls the police and says that during a party, he accidentally overheard a conversation about the murder in Vindergaard Street. According to the witness, a man matching the description from the Unsolved program was behaving strangely at the party. He seemed numb and made sex-related comments about the murder. The same man was allegedly telling other guests that he'd lost his job at the supermarket a while earlier because it had come to light that he'd been trying to enlist in the Foreign Legion. He seemed irritated by that and spoke ill of the women who had been his boss. The witness also says the man mentioned he was planning to enlist in the special unit of the Danish military. Apparently, 
this man was still dreaming of a military career because, as he says, women ruin everything, and at least there are none in the military. The police question other party guests and learn the man's name and address. Then they pay him a visit. The man is 25 years old, and he's at home when the policemen arrive. He calmly but firmly informs the officers that he was at the cinema watching the film Henry V at the time the murder was committed. The police search his flat, but don't find anything suspicious. The young man doesn't have a criminal record, so the police put his file on a pile for people of interest. The police have no idea that this won't be their last meeting with him. During the next few weeks, the murder is still one of the main topics the media talk about. A company that chose to remain anonymous sets a reward of 10,000 kroner, about 1,200 pounds. The course of events is reconstructed and presented on TV. Afterwards, over 800 people come forward, claiming to have important information about the case. The chief of the criminal division, Jens Erik Lehmann, informs residents that the police are working on putting the pieces of this complicated puzzle together, but they are missing one key element one crucial clue. The problem is that even though the perpetrator likely has a psychological condition marked by perverse sexual tendencies, he is not among the known criminals that police have in their archives. Shortly after the official announcement about the lack of important clues, the police are contacted by the chief psychologist from the hospital in Odense, Professor Beckman. He is convinced that he and his colleagues can develop a psychological profile of the perpetrator based on the information that has been collected so far. The police don't accept that offer of help right away, afraid that such a report could make the investigation more difficult. But finally, they agree to the proposal. Professor Beckman and his co-workers are given access to the case files, and a few weeks later, the psychologists present their report. It's the first time the Danish police use this kind of analysis during an investigation. The psychologist's hypothesis is that the murderer is an introverted, intelligent person who is physically strong and experienced in using knives. His actions are deliberate and he can control his body. He probably doesn't have close friends and has difficulties making contact with women. The final psychological profile is an assessment divided into three categories, depending on their probability. The categories are very probable, probable, and less probable. Very probable. 1. He doesn't suffer from any mental disorders. 2. He's intelligent, clearly above the average. 3. He has sex-related problems. He might be impotent. 4. He hates women. 5. He's physically strong. 6. He's experienced in using professional knives. Probable. 1. He is tense. 2. Making contact with other people is difficult for him. 3. He's an introvert. 4. He doesn't have many close friends. 5. People from his environment are poorly educated. 6. He doesn't feel guilt. Less probable? 1. He doesn't have a girlfriend. He was recently rejected or humiliated. He's disappointed with his girlfriend or women in general. 2. He's drawn to sexuality, but at the same time afraid of it. 3. He displays perverse sexual tendencies. In his case, 
sexuality manifests almost solely in fantasies or actions involving violence. 4. He's always ready for violence, which coincides with his sex drive. 5. He emphasizes violence and is completely indifferent when committing violent acts. 6. The victim's loss of consciousness stimulates him sexually or heightens his aggression. On the 9th of March, two weeks after the murder, it's become clear that there's been some progress in the investigation. It's not due to the psychologists, though, but rather due to the findings of technicians from the Forensic Genetics Department in Copenhagen. Their examination of the blood samples from Bettina's clothes conclude that the blood found on her shoes doesn't belong to the victim. It's a very rare blood group, only found in one person in 25,000. The investigators are satisfied because it confirms what they have been hoping for from the very beginning, that the perpetrator had cut himself while attacking the victim and had left traces of his blood at the crime scene. The police can finally do more. They order blood samples from about 20 suspects. One of them is the young man who was at the party and wanted to enlist in the army and who talked about the murder in Vindergaard Street. He agrees to have a blood sample taken. The investigators need to wait 11 days before they get the results. The police look again at what the witnesses from the party had said about the 25-year-old. In many aspects, the witness's description matches the profile developed by the psychologists. That makes the police all the more eager to get solid evidence that would confirm the murderer's profile. After getting the examination results, the forensic geneticists inform the investigators that the blood found on Bettina's trousers probably belonged to the 25-year-old man. The blood group is the same. The next day, the 21st of March 1992, the investigating officer assigns additional personnel to the case as they have to arrest the young man and search his flat. The police don't have to go far, as the suspect only lives 300 meters away from the police station. His name is Jens, and his flat is in a new building beside a stream. At 10.20 a.m., two police officers ring the doorbell, but Jens is not home. So the investigators go to his mother instead. She opens the door and doesn't try to hide the fact her son is in her house. The young man, Jens, comes to the hallway, and when he sees the police, he asks his mother to go to the living room. The officers inform him that he is accused of murder. To their great surprise, he immediately admits that it was him. He seems almost relieved to be able to finally talk about what he did. Even during the first interrogations, it quickly becomes apparent that he was aware the police would find him sooner or later. When his friends are questioned, they paint him as a withdrawn, lonely oddball. His childhood was defined by a violent father, and as a teenager, he was easily provoked and often got into fights. As a child, he spent most of his time reading comics and watching war films. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. After his arrest, one of his school friends told the BT tabloid that Jens rarely spoke at school and tried to avoid drawing attention to himself. He wasn't doing very well in primary school, but his school friend's testimonies suggest that becoming an outsider was his own decision, as he'd never been bullied or excluded from the group. He barely went on any school trips or outings, and even though he got invited to parties, he never went to any. After finishing high school in 1982, he went on to a vocational school, where he finished successfully after passing his exams. Then he began studying at a business school, but never graduated from it. In 1987, he enlisted in the army. His school friends claim that since then, he became more unusual. He spent his leave time alone at home, but he wore his uniform every day. He also became increasingly more unapproachable. People who chanced upon him in the street had a feeling that he reacted to greetings with anger. In 1989, he was officially exempted from military service and classified as unfit for further service. He was unemployed up to June 1990, when he started working as a trainee shop assistant in a supermarket in northern Funen. During the investigation, the man confesses that he'd never had a girlfriend or any sexual experience. The former soldier, who is 192 centimeters tall, six foot four, spends his free time in a local karate club in Odense. He's drawn in by discipline and the aspiration to go beyond the limits. He has a purple belt, and isn't far from gaining his brown belt. Because he doesn't want to give up on his dreams of a military career, and the Danish army rejected his application, he decides to enlist in the French Foreign Legion. The Foreign Legion military training is generally considered extremely difficult and demanding. Eleven days before committing the murder, on the 11th of February 1992, the accused went to one of the Foreign Legion recruitment points in France to take a recruitment test and take a medical examination. He was told that due to his knee problems, he couldn't be enrolled. On his return to Denmark, his employer was outraged that he'd gone to France without warning and dismissed him with immediate effect. That happened on the 21st of February, the day before the murder. After Jens was arrested, he didn't hide anything from the police and instead described the events in detail. On the 22nd of February, the day of the murder, he woke with a feeling that something had to happen. He was anxious and depressed. He spent the day trying to decide what film he wanted to see in the cinema and finally picked Henry V. In the evening, he put a military jacket on and hid a special knife in his boot. He also took a smaller hobby knife with him that he'd used in the supermarket to open cardboard boxes. He was aimlessly roaming the city for hours, thinking about life. He decided that something drastic had to happen and that he wanted to destroy something. At some point, he passed by the student hostel in Vindergaard Street and noticed a young woman walking towards a bike storeroom. He followed her, and before entering the storeroom, took the knife from his boot. 
During the investigation, he says that when he followed the girl, he had no idea what he was going to do to her. Assault and robbery, a violent crime, or rape? Every option was possible. Please be aware that the following account he went on to narrate includes graphic details that some listeners may find distressing. When Jens entered the bike store, he finds the room quite dark inside. The girl, Bettina, turns towards him and says good evening, certain that he's one of the residents who has come to get his bike. Instead of answering, he steps behind her and puts his knife to her face. At the same time, he grabs her by the throat, but she manages to free herself and the knife falls to the ground. The young woman screams. To silence her, he pushes the back of his hand into her mouth. Bettina falls but manages to get up. Her assailant grabs her by the throat again. Bettina faints, slipping to the ground and stays there, lying on her stomach. Meanwhile, the man tries to find his knife. When the girl starts to move again, he grabs the shawl she has around her neck and she faints again. Yielding to a sudden impulse, the attacker decides that he wants to rape her. He cuts her belt and then both legs of her trousers with the small hobby knife, then cuts up the rest of her clothes. Bettina is lying on her back, naked from the waist down and only partly clothed from the waist up. The man takes her purse and watch and hides them in his pocket. He attempts to have sexual intercourse with her, but Bettina breathes in a gulp of air and regains consciousness for a moment. The man hears a car outside. He panics, afraid that someone might hear the girl, and he hits her in the face four or five times. He squeezes her throat, and she loses consciousness again. Once again, he tries to rape her, but this time he's disturbed by her sudden fit of coughing. That's when he notices the knife he dropped earlier. He reaches for it and slashes at her neck twice, and one of them severs her artery. As absurd as it sounds, he tries to stop the bleeding with her shawl for a moment, even though he already knows it's too late. A moment later, and Bettina is dead. Jens can only think about one thing, vanishing as quickly as possible. On his way to the door, he remembers that he touched the lamp on the girl's bike and takes it with him. He uses Bettina's underwear to wipe his fingerprints off the storeroom's door handle. He runs a few meters, but then slows down, not wanting to draw attention to himself. He heads towards the cinema, but when he looks at himself, he notices traces of blood on his fingertips. He instead goes home, washes and changes his clothes. He decides to wait for the next showing, which starts at 9pm. Despite everything that happened, he slept well that night. The next day, he cuts up all the plastic cards he found in Bettina's wallet and scatters the pieces in random places across the whole town. He then throws her keys into the river that runs behind his house. The rest of Bettina's things are put into a bag with a Coca-Cola logo, along with the clothes he was wearing and a 9kg weight. On the 25th of February... He gets on a ferry and throws the bag into the sea somewhere between Nürburg and Kosher. It seems the perpetrator was found thanks to the testimony of the witness who saw the reconstruction of events on TV and recognized the fleeing man. This witness also received the 10,000 kroner reward. But paradoxically, the perpetrator said he didn't run through the gate and also went in the opposite direction. That's why the police think the man seen by the witness wasn't the murderer. Still, the TV program helped to get the crucial clue. On the 22nd of March, the 25-year-old Jens is taken to a judge, charged with assault, rape, and murder, and detained. The man confesses to the murder and doesn't want to comment on the two remaining charges, but five days later, he confesses to the assault 
and rape as well. The accused insists that there should be no women in the courtroom during his hearing. Even though the perpetrator has already pleaded guilty, the police still need to find evidence confirming that he is really the murderer. On the 23rd of March, divers from a private rescue service and the military are ordered to search the river in Odense, hoping to find Bettina Rasmussen's keys. The search goes on for four days before the divers give up due to poor visibility and the current being too strong. They don't try to look for the sports bag that's lying somewhere at the bottom of the Great Belt, as finding something so small in the middle of a strait like that would be practically impossible. But the police get lucky. A month later, one of the fishermen from Korsha catches the bag with the Coca-Cola logo while fishing at night. Thanks to the newspaper articles he's read, he remembers it might be connected to the case and doesn't even touch it. He calls the police station in Korsha over the radio and tells them about what he's found. The bag is secured by a police patrol as soon as the cutter arrives in port. The case is almost solved. The police have the evidence they need, and the suspect has pleaded guilty. As usual in cases when the perpetrator pleads guilty, the trial is only planned for a few sessions. But then Jens suddenly changes his testimony. He decides to plead not guilty to the rape, saying that he only tried to have sexual intercourse with the victim when she was already dead. It's an attempt to avoid severe punishment for rape, as the sentence for defiling a corpse is much milder. Jens probably realizes that detail might decide whether he will get a life sentence or 16 years in prison. The offender pleads guilty, but since the outcome of the trial and sentencing is no longer just based on the murder, the case is handed over to a jury court. Jens barely survives his time in jail while awaiting trial. It's a well-known fact that sex offenders are persecuted by other prisoners, and one of the inmates stabbed Jens with scissors while passing him in the corridor. The edge almost cuts through one of his major arteries, but the doctors in the hospital managed to stop the bleeding. Jens's mother talks to the press with surprising sincerity. She's not trying to defend her son or justify his terrible crime in any way, nor does she feel sorry for him. But as she told Extra Bladet, he's still her son. The policemen who interrogate Jens describe him as a man devoid of feelings and without remorse. During his time in jail, he is examined by psychologists who make the following diagnosis. The perpetrator is intelligent and doesn't suffer from any mental illness, but he does have personality disorders and is dangerous to other people. On the 1st of April 1993, the county court in Odense finds Jens guilty of murder and rape. In the end, he is not accused of theft because compared to the other two charges, that one seems meaningless. During the trial, Jens only answers questions with yes and no. The jury deliberates for only 15 minutes, and the case ends with a historic verdict. The 25-year-old gets a life sentence. He becomes the first person without a previous criminal record in Denmark to get the maximum sentence. The condemned man isn't going to appeal to the Supreme Court. Experienced policemen describe Bettina's murder as the most inhuman of all crimes in the more recent history of Danish law. Investigators rarely have to deal with perpetrators murdering their victims with such indifference and without any hint of remorse. 
The psychological profile prepared by Professor Jörn Beckmann during the investigation matched the culprit's personality perfectly. The murderer had had no earlier sexual experiences, was strong and athletic, was an introvert, and had experience using knives. A week after the young medical student Bettina Rasmussen was murdered, Professor Jörn Beckmann, head of the psychology department at the university clinic in Odense, attends a conference in Vela dedicated to victims of violent crimes. Beckman is so moved by the case because Bettina was one of his students. When the police accepted Jorn Beckman's offer, he was granted access to all the files related to the case. He invited two of his colleagues to draw up the culprit's psychological profile, Henrik Hurt Olesen and Gert Didlu. The three psychologists worked almost 24 hours a day for three weeks before they presented the results of their work to the police. Jörn Beckmann later explains to the press how their work was carried out. He tells them, We look at the circumstances surrounding the murder a little differently than the police. First of all, you cannot simply jump to conclusions. You have to examine everything the perpetrator left behind, take into account what they don't leave and what the crime scene looks like. If we analyze the circumstances through the lens of clinical psychology, we'll learn what the murderer's trail of thoughts were when they were committing the crime, as well as what their state was before, during, and after the crime. If we look at the crime through the murderer's eyes, we'll get closer to learning who they really are. That method is based on the facts as well as likely patterns of actions. That's how you analyze the motive for murder. It's always important to determine if the perpetrator seemed mentally ill or unstable. In this case, we assumed they were not because they were well-organized and cleaned the crime scene. Then you should ask the question about their intelligence and whether they committed the murder because they could not predict how the situation would develop. In this case, we concluded it was a person with average or even above-average intelligence and serious sexual issues. And finally, you have to ask yourself the question why did they kill? Was it only out of aggression, or was there a sexual motive, or maybe both? That murder involved a certain amount of aggression as the victim's clothes were cut with a knife, but the murderer was composed and didn't panic at any point. It had to be a person who had difficulties making contact with people, unable to satisfy their needs, and who probably felt rejected. Today we can tell that that was the case. He had just been rejected by the Foreign Legion, which could have heightened his aggression and hate. Without a doubt, the murder was an expression of his great internal struggles and his sex drive. At the same point, they became so powerful he had to find an outlet for them. A few years after the case was closed, the psychologist explained that mechanism in an interview with the Politikan newspaper. Ever since that murder, Jorn Beckman has been helping the police on a regular basis by developing psychological profiles of perpetrators in unsolved crimes. This example shows that the cooperation between psychologists and police can be helpful. Despite this, the continued use of such methods is rare in Denmark. This case was the first time when someone else's knowledge was applied in such a way, and even though psychological profiling may not directly lead to solving the case, the results of this particular work were precise and proved crucial to the progress of the investigation. The most important thing is that Bettina's murderer was captured and sentenced. And thanks to that case, the police gained a new tool 
that can be helpful while solving similar cases. From Podimo, that was Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime. A new episode every week, wherever you get your podcasts. For early access to episodes or to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo on Apple Podcasts. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.